here's how I would love to start. I want to do a quick uh, summary of, or a quick overview of context of Daniel, just for those of us that have been in and out the last couple so you know where we're at. And then I want to summarize Daniel chapter 4, just to give us some context, right? Visions and translations can be confusing. And then I want to dive into the main, main point of Daniel chapter 4. And that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time preaching out of. So here's a little bit of context just of Daniel as writings. Uh, it's comprised of two main types of writings, uh, historical recordings and recordings of Daniel's personal visions that he experienced with God. And the majority of Daniel's written by the man Daniel, also known here as Belteshazzar. Uh, that was his Babylonian name. His Hebrew name was Daniel, Babylonian name was Belteshazzar. Um, and the one exception to Daniel's authorship is what we're going to be reading today. Today in Daniel chapter 4 was written by King Nebuchadnezzar himself. Uh, and all of this occurred around the year 600 BC, so roughly 2,500 to 2,800 years ago. Now, what's going on in the, the national context is uh, the nation of Israel has been divided due to civil war into two nations, Israel and Judah. And they've been living with ups and downs of faithfulness to God for several hundred years. And at this point in time, both of them have been markedly unfaithful to God. Rampant injustice and oppression, greed, murder. It is a bad place to live. And so in consequence, God sends uh, conquering nations to come and basically take away the favor and the wealth of Israel and as a declaration to Israel and the nations that God's hand is no longer on these people. These people are no longer good representatives of what my kingdom looks like. So I'm pulling my hand back. In this moment in time, Babylon comes in and conquers the nation of Judah. And King Nebuchadnezzar, which we just read about, King Nebuchadnezzar is the totalitarian ruler. He is the one guy on top. And Nebuchadnezzar has this terrible and amazing standing order that for all of the nations that they take over, not only do his armies defeat them, but he has the standing practice of overwhelming and assimilating them culturally. He does this in two primary ways. When he would take over nations such as Judah, he would take the best and the brightest and he would ship them off somewhere towards the heartland of Babylon. So they would lose context of what was their, their heritage and their traditions and their identity as a nation and as a people. He would take all that away from them and assimilate them to the new place he was sending them. And then he takes other people from other, another part of the empire and he'd ship them into the newly vacated area so they also would have no sense of heritage or tradition. And so they are entirely identified by the identity that the king of Babylon gives them. Now, here's the, the scary part. This had the functional purpose not only of defeating nations, but of rewriting their identities. The Babylonian intention was dominance through normalization, meaning your new life is the new normal. There will not be anything different. Get used to it. And this is wickedly genius. It's wickedly genius. So the writings of the book of Daniel is about exiles in this exact situation remembering or struggling to remember their heritage and their identity so that they can stay faithful to their God in a nation where everything is literally engineered to make them forget. The histories and the visions of Daniel are pertinent for all Christians in all places in all times for this exact reason. Specifically because no matter how religious or irreligious your country, the work of God right now in our moment is to expand a kingdom that is not of this world. We are part of a new 
kingdom. So all Christians, all places, all times are currently living as exiles in this world. So what that means is anything of this world, whether it's your country, your family, religious, unreligious, anything of this world is not your primary heritage, nor our primary identity. This is our missions field. This is where we seek to live faithfully to God, expanding his kingdom, and we do that by serving our neighbor and loving our enemy, as given to us, instruction given to us by Jesus of Nazareth. And this is the biblical truth established both by Jesus as well as all the New Testament scriptures. And this is a calling and a life that is beautiful. And it is full and it is meaningful and it's really, really hard. We've chosen to subtitle uh, our series, right? The main title is Exiles in Babylon. But notice the subtitle is God's Will for Faithful Exiles and Beastly Kingdoms. So the book of Daniel gives hope and instruction for faithful exiles, right? We've experienced that so far. But it mostly does this by setting the record straight of who's in charge. Beastly kingdoms are powerful. Beastly kingdoms are dominant. They are expansive. They are influential. And beastly kingdoms excel at assimilating, distracting, and destroying the people of God. It is hard to be faithful when you live in the shadow of a beastly kingdom. And what Daniel is doing is it's reminding God's people that though they may feel that they're living in the shadow of the beast, they are actually factually squarely planted as sons and daughters in the kingdom of God. Beasts will rise and fall, but ultimately they will be destroyed and removed forever. So therefore, Christian, in all times and all places, fix your eyes on the light of the Son of God, even in the valley of the shadow of death and in the presence of your enemies. You remember Psalm 23. This is the primary message of Daniel chapter 4, and the whole main point of, of the rest of today is that God is in control, and we, humanity, and they, the beastly kings, are not. So here's a quick summary of Daniel chapter 4 so we can make that point so clearly. Like I said, the rest of Daniel is written by Daniel or Belteshazzar, but you'll notice here in chapter 4, verse 1 through 3 opens with Nebuchadnezzar introducing himself. I, Nebuchadnezzar, king. And then he explains that he's writing a letter to the nations, to all languages, peoples, nations, so that they would know God's might, God's wonders, and his everlasting kingdom. That's the introduction. The rest of chapter 4 is explaining how this beastly king came to that conclusion. Because you'll remember at the end of chapter 3, this was not his posture. At the end of chapter 3, Daniel was for, or excuse me, Nebuchadnezzar was forcing his empire to worship an idol that he had commissioned to be constructed, and he was forcing his nation to worship this idol under threat of death. And this was part of his project of domination through assimilation. But when he saw God's supernatural intervention through Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he simply pivoted forcing his empire from worshiping an idol to worshiping a misunderstood version of Yahweh under threat of death, right? He's playing the same old game with a new God. It's very clear that he doesn't quite get it yet. So then uh, the narrative picks up in Daniel chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 4, where God intervenes again by sending a vision to Nebuchadnezzar. 6 and 7, he's disturbed, so he calls on all of his advisors and magicians. None of them are able to give him a satisfactory interpretation. So, Verse 8 and 9, uh, Nebuchadnezzar calls Daniel in because he's experienced Daniel's 
wisdom, and he says, the spirit of the holy gods is with this man. So verse, eight, verse 10 through 17, Nebuchadnezzar uh, tells him the vision, which in summary is that he sees this tall, glorious tree reaching up to the heavens, and this tree is, is bountiful and rich and strong and providing food and shelter for beasts and birds. But a watcher or a heavenly being comes from heaven and proclaims this mighty tree is going to be chopped down, stripped, and its fruit scattered. But the stump or the root of it is going to be left bound with iron. And then the vision interestingly changes language. It says, so this person, he, will be let, driven outside to live outdoors. He'll live wet with the dew of the morning. He'll be eating grass with the mind of a beast. And this will last seven periods of time. But the watcher says this really specifically. It's for the purpose that, quote, the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Verse 18 through 27, Daniel interprets a dream. I won't say it all again, but basically he's saying, Nebuchadnezzar, bad news. This is all about you. But here's, here's the weird part about the way Daniel goes about this. Is he says, I wish it wasn't for you. I wish it was for those you hate, for your enemies. Daniel's saying this to a life-threatening pagan ruler, an evil man. I wish this wasn't for you, but for your enemies. And he urges the king, the counsel he gives them is to change his lifestyle, to govern toward mercy of the oppressed, and to seek God's patience. Nebuchadnezzar, verse 28 through 33, very quickly gets distracted. He gets back into the swing of his old life. And 12 months later, he's standing on the top of his palace, admiring all of his accomplishments, literally saying, look how great I am. When a voice from heaven speaks and says that the reality of that vision is now here. Nebuchadnezzar is struck with madness. He's driven out of his own palace to live in the countryside like an animal, like a beast. He eats grass. He sleeps with no shelter. His hair goes long and wild. And it says his nails grow unkempt to resemble a bird's claws. Verse 34 and 35, at the end of seven years, just like what was envisioned, his reason is returned to him. He uses it to praise and honor Yahweh, whose dominion, he says, is everlasting. Verse 36, his kingdom is returned to him when his counselors come and find him now back in his right mind and humbled. If you're wondering, how did that all happen? Well, his counselors probably said, if the first part happened, the, the second part, seven years later, will probably happen too. Let's go looking for him. <laughs> and so they come across him in the wild, now sane and glorifying God. And then Nebuchadnezzar ends in verse 37 by writing this letter, extolling and honoring the high king of heaven, who this humbled king says is right, just, and able to humble the proud would seem at the end of chapter 4 that Nebuchadnezzar gets the point. And this is the main point that Nebuchadnezzar concludes, that God is in control and we are not. This is stated explicitly four times, twice by Nebuchadnezzar, once by the watcher and once by Daniel. You'll see right in verse 2 and 3, Nebuchadnezzar says, It seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. He is king above all kings. And the bizarre part of this, remember, Nebuchadnezzar's literally ruling like half the known world at this point. What kind of like crazy guy writes a letter to all of his subjects saying, I'm not actually as powerful as, as you think. There's someone above me. Like this is a, a bizarre act of sincerity that Nebuchadnezzar is doing. You see in the watcher in verse 17, I've already read it, but he says, the watcher, the holy one says, 
All of this is happening so the living would know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, sets over it the lowliest of men. And then Daniel reinterprets it, basically quotes the exact same thing, and Nebuchadnezzar himself finally at the end says two times, he's extolling and praising the control and the mightiness and the dominion of God over everything. Again, chapter 4 is using Nebuchadnezzar's firsthand experiences in Nebuchadnezzar's very own voice to tell us the main point that God is in control and we are not. As I say that, and as I've been wrestling with that, um, it's been a little bit weird, and I want to ask you a really quick question just to consider before we move on. When I say that, God is in control, we are not. How do you feel about that? Comforting. So, as I consider this, it's either God is in control or we are. And that second option, that we are in control, sounds nice for a little bit, right? But upon quick investigation, it quickly reveals that reality is actually quite bleak and hopeless. If we are in control and God is not. Because a simple observation of other people's behaviors, as well as their ideologies, shows us freneticism, anxiety, greed, emotional numbing, relational loneliness, inflated egos, arrogance, the pursuit of happiness, through pleasure, distraction, and overabundance and domination. Now, I know that was a lot, but am I crazy? Like, am I, am I the only one that sees this as the, the broader trends and way of living in our world? As I look around and hear both people's worries and their solutions, it feels just really hopeless. War, modern-day slavery, natural disasters, a world that cannot sustain our overproduction or our overwaste, Arrogant leaders, mean leaders, manipulative leaders, deceptive leaders, political impasse, a new cycle that cannot stop but remind us of injustice, hypocrisy, violence, and your vulnerability to all of it. You know what the worst part about all of that is? None of it's new. We've been seeing the same exact mess as far back as the records of human history go. This isn't like we just dropped the ball the last couple of decades. What that means is that my, Trevor's, only hope in this world is that we aren't in control and that God is. And if God is in control and we are not, this is good news. This is really good news because what it means is no matter how hard we as humanity thrash and abuse and destroy, even the most beastly kingdoms are part of God's plan of redemption and goodness and justice. It's either that beastly kings and kingdoms are in control or they are subservient even in ignorance to a greater king who is moving goodness and justice in the world. You know that nagging question You've probably heard, why do, good, or why do bad things happen to good people? Put simply, it's because without God's intervening presence, we are beastly and we build beastly kingdoms. But I think there's a more important question here because why isn't very helpful because the simple reality is bad things do happen to good people all the time. So for me, the more pertinent question is, what's being done about it? And what's being done through it? Is this all just an empty black hole or is it leading somewhere? 
And Daniel seems to be giving us hope because he's saying even though beasts loom large, there's something even more powerful that is above them. God is doing something good through his everlasting kingdom, his everlasting dominion. Chapter 4 is shouting at us, God is in control. We are not, they are not, do not despair. I'm open to push back, and you might say, well, Trevor, you don't understand, right? You don't understand how powerful these people are, how powerful these forces are, these cultural tides. You don't understand how powerful these nations are. Clearly, they're in control. And if I base my life on Scripture, I would point to chapter 4 and point out who is being humbled and how they're being humbled. We see in chapter 4 that Nebuchadnezzar is being humbled, right? But he is not just any guy. He is literally the most powerful man in the world. And he is at the pinnacle of his success and his security. Chapter 4 opens by saying, I, Nebuchadnezzar, in the comfort and prosperity of my kingdom and my home. Not a care, not a threat in the world. Nebuchadnezzar, at this point, he spent decades of his life expanding his empire. He's been conquering and assimilating new people groups and new regions into his empire. He's amassed incredible wealth, and he's, like, factually, historically, he was a pretty successful king. He had developed Babylon as the cultural and architectural crown of the world. If you're familiar with the seven uh, ancient wonders of the world, you might know the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. This was the point in history where that had occurred. This was the king that had commissioned and funded that wonder of the world. He was doing well. He had built an empire in pursuit of his power, in pursuit of his pleasure, and in pursuit of his pride, and he was wildly successful. And God humbles him in the most terrifying way. He takes away his humanity. Genesis, we covered this last week, but Genesis says that we are made as all human beings in the, quote, image of God. Last week, chapter 3, the main point or the main question was the situation where Nebuchadnezzar is demanding that these humans made in the image of God, they were being asked to bow down to an image made by men. These living statues created in the image of God were being asked to bow down and worship something created by hand, dead statues. And here in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has his reason taken away from him. And he lives like a beast or a wild animal. God has taken his image out of Nebuchadnezzar. He has made him an animal. God is asserting here through humbling the most powerful nation and man in the world that God is in control. And then here he is saying that God is in control of our very humanness. And this here is more than punishment towards Nebuchadnezzar. This is revelation. God's teaching Nebuchadnezzar and us as readers that humans that live in opposition to God, whether that's through our rejection of him, our own distraction, or our avoidance, when we live in opposition to God, we are taking steps towards beastliness. If we who are made in God's image reject God, we are twisting and corroding the image of God in us, and we are becoming more beastly than godly. Again, chapter 4 is shouting to us that most, that humans are the most human, I'll say that again, 
Human beings are the most human when the image of God in us is most clear. The image of God in us is most clear when we are living gladly underneath his control. When we reject God, we reject his image in us and we become beastly. We become enslaved to beastly desires, beastly passions, beastly pursuits. But human beings are set free underneath God's rule when we are living in his image, becoming God-like. As children of God, what that means is we're becoming like our dad. And Nebuchadnezzar, it's this moment when he has his reason given back to him, when he's been restored, it's at that moment that he's at the pinnacle of his reason and his humanity and his humility. It's at that moment that he proclaims God's sovereignty. I want to read this. Verse 34 and 35, Nebuchadnezzar says, At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. I blessed the Most High and I praised and honored him who lives forever. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay or stop his hand or say to him, what have you done? Verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, I praise and extol and honor the king of the heaven. For all of his works are right, his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. The reality here is that godliness and goodness are not boring. Right? Some of us have that misconception that like, those who are really godly are just like really boring fuddy-duddies. Uh, that's actually not true at all. Goodness and godly love are diverse, they are creative, and they are beautiful, and it's actually evil and selfishness that are bland, repetitive, and predictable. Nebuchadnezzar was just like all the other beastly kings before and after until he acknowledged God's reign. And this is when he's set free to, to see the world most clearly, when he's able to think the most humbly and rationally, when he's living into the fullness of the image of God in him. And notice, does he seem disappointed by this process? Like, oh man, God humbled me. He's kind of mean. What a bummer. Like, no, Nebuchadnezzar ends and he is stoked, right? Everyone needs to know. I need to write a letter to everyone, even the, my own uh, subjects in my kingdom, that there is a God better and more beautiful and more lovely than I am and more powerful than I am. This is the height, I would argue, of Nebuchadnezzar's joy in humanity is when he is humbled beneath the reign of God. And it's because Nebuchadnezzar has experienced God's personhood, God's realness, that he's able to now trust and submit to God. Here's why I'm saying that. Is in order for us to lovingly trust God's reign and lovingly trust God's will, we need to know who God is. We need to know what he does with his power. And God is most clearly revealed to us through his son, Jesus. Jesus in the gospel says that the way you know the Father is through me. And what we see if we look at the gospels is that Jesus is actually the most human human ever. Jesus is the most human human ever. What that means is there is no beastliness in him. There is no sin. If you read about him in the gospels, not only is he without sin, he's just really interesting. He's intriguing, he's creative, he's loving. Everywhere he goes, he's bringing wisdom and peace and challenge. He's like, he is 
so intriguing as a human being. And Jesus of Nazareth, in addition to being the most human human ever, he's the best king ever. Again, the Gospels tell us that he was born as a king, the king of the Jews. He was the Messiah. Jesus, the name Jesus literally means God saves. And the record of Jesus' life shows that he advented or he came, he arrived as a king. But unlike all the other beastly kings before and after him, he didn't come in order to lord his authority over us. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. That's straight out of Mark chapter 10, verse 35 through 45, if you'd like to look. And as the best king ever, he humbled himself even to, point, to the point of death in order to save you and I from our beastliness and its consequences. He's doing all of this in order to make a new kingdom of renewed humans that look and live just like their dad in heaven. Godly, God-like. Not only is he the most human human ever, not only is he the best king ever, he is the most powerful conqueror ever. Right? In contrast to Nebuchadnezzar, who has conquered his way through dozens of nations, Jesus is the most powerful conqueror ever. All other beastly kings will pass. They will conquer. They will expand. They will rewrite human identity in order to serve themselves. They may even kill. But they will diminish and they will pass. Jesus, in contrast, lived his life in order to give you and I, his righteousness, or his track record of zero beastliness, if you will. And then he died in order to take what should have been our consequence of death and separation from God. But in doing this, he conquers. This is not just a legal act. He conquers death and hell itself in an everlasting dominion. He's guaranteed victory forever. And Jesus coming as this conquering king does not rewrite identities so you lose your sense of self and become assimilated to his dominance. Jesus rather comes to rewrite our identities, not through dominance, but through love. As cheesy as that sounds. To give us new identities through love and self-sacrifice. Not to enslave us, but to set us free to be godly. To live into the image of God in us. And then he guarantees that his dominion is everlasting. His kingdom endures. It does not expand and diminish. It only goes one direction. And he guarantees that you and I have a new home in this kingdom. Everyone who will lovingly trust his reign and his will is remade as a son and daughter. Then he gives us this conquering power through the Holy Spirit so that no matter what is thrown at us, we are more than conquerors through the power and the presence of Christ. If you'd like to read more on that, check out Romans chapter 8. What this means for us is if Jesus is our king, It rewrites our identities in the best of ways. And it changes the practicals for how we live our life. I would love to read one scripture and then give us some ideas. 1 Peter chapter 2 says this, But you, the church, those renewed by the grace of Jesus, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him that called you out of darkness, out of beastliness, and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So beloved, I urge you as sojourners, as exiles, 
Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Jesus has rewritten our identities and given us a brand new job description. So what does all of this mean? If Jesus is our king, what does this mean for those of us among, in this room who are in power? Some of you guys are very powerful. You have wealth and status and influence. And that is a good thing. And it means that we embrace that power with gratitude and humility. Chapter 4 tells us that God puts over kingdoms even the lowliest of men according to his own will. So that means that if you have power, it's been given to you for good purpose. Have gratitude, not shame. Use it honorably and humbly. You have no claim over it, so use it for his kingdom. Second point of application, if you have power or where you have power, study God's kingdom values and implement them because it is hypocrisy to claim Jesus as your king and then build a beastly kingdom beneath yourself. And where all of that is messy and confusing, know that there is grace and forgiveness for all of us who walk in ignorance. Those of us who walk in disobedience, Jesus has come to love us and to renew us so we can trust him. We do not need to be ashamed, but we do need to repent and transform. Now, if Jesus is our king, what does it mean for those of us who are in weakness? Odds are many of us identify more as weak people than powerful people in this room. First, the good news that God is in control and Jesus is my king galvanizes me to live faithfully to Yahweh. Because even the most powerful human being is, verse 35, quote, accounted as nothing before God. That means even if you feel like you are the worst, lowly, weakest human being on the planet for all time, you have no reason to bow to another human being. Because there is a king who is above all. And he has not dejected you or rejected you, but he has called you beloved. And he has shown you mercy when you didn't have it before. And when you had no value, he's given you value. And he calls you a son and daughter. So no matter how much anyone tries to take away your humanness, anyone tries to rewrite your identity as being invaluable or unimportant, you are made in the image of God. No one can take that away from you. This also means for those of us in weakness, it gives us a healthy perspective of foolish leaders and national and international events. These people have far less power and influence over the world than we are tempted to fear. God is above them even in their ignorance. God is working out his plan of goodness and justice. Here's a, a point of application from the chapter 4. Because Daniel knows that God is in control, not Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel's identity is not a refugee in exile. Daniel is a missionary in exile. Daniel has been sent not to serve Nebuchadnezzar, though he does as an honorable man, but he, um, he is there as a missionary in Babylon. What that means for you, Christian, is you are not a defeated minority. You are a servant of the conquering king. And so when it comes to faithful obedience to him, go for it. 
I say all of that, and I want to give one simple caveat. It is that trusting Jesus is hard. In fact, it's terrifying. And so to trust Jesus, it takes emotional intelligence, which might be a weird point of application. But let me walk us through that for a second. Being faithful to Jesus, trusting Jesus, does not mean you close your mind in order to believe right. It does not mean you turn yourself off in order to be faithful. It does not mean that if you are um, scared or angry or worried, then you're just bad at believing. Scripture shows us that faithfulness and trust is created when we bring our fears and our worries, etc., to Jesus. We don't turn them off to be faithful. We bring them to Jesus to be faithful. And we ask him as a friend and as a counselor and as our king, Jesus, I'm scared. Should I be afraid right now? Jesus, are you actually in control? Jesus, I'm angry. Should I be angry? Am I responding in my anger the right way? Am I responding as you would? Jesus, am I right in my conclusions here? Jesus, would you help me? Here's why this is important. Our society, just like Babylon, is engineered to make you forget your identity and your heritage. Now, I'm not claiming like an Illuminati thing, but I think all of us could say, whether it's a, a marketing firm or big tech or a, a partisan uh, governmental party, much of the tactic is to get you afraid so you give them power. Are you afraid? Buy the home security system. Are you tired? Buy the vacation package. They play on our identities to get us to buy things and give them our votes. I'm not saying we should not vote nor consume in healthy ways. But when those things come, the proper response is to go to Jesus. So in 2024, when the election cycle comes back around and someone gets up and says, this is the, the disaster, the train wreck we're headed for. You need to believe in me. Give me control. And our emotional response is, you're right. Our world is going to hell in a handbasket. I do need to be afraid. I do need to. We simply go to Jesus and say, Jesus, I am terrified. Are you in control? What do I need to do in this situation? Jesus, I'm angry. What do I need to do in this situation? And he, through that one-on-one -on -one interaction, creates trust and love and transformation in our lives. In one sentence, we bring our real-life stuff to the real-life Jesus. We abide in him. That is the process and the interaction for how trust is built. Where I would like to end is to take communion with you. Communion is the declaration that Jesus is my king. That my king advented. He came here on earth in humility and in service and died for me. And that these elements that I hold in my hand are the goodness of the flavors of my king's reign and how he uses his power. Taking communion is proclaiming that he is the ultimate power in the world and that his dominion is everlasting. So to you, Christian, I would invite you to communion and ask you to enjoy and praise and bring your fears and your doubts to your king and ask if he's in control.
But I also want to give one invitation. I recognize there's some of us in this room that do not count Jesus as our king. And I want to recognize that you might be very, very tired of living as a slave to your own beastliness. Living vulnerable to the beastly kings and kingdoms around us. So I would challenge and invite and ask, do you want to trust the reign and the will of the king that loves you to the point he would give himself for you? Do you want to trust this king in order to be set free to live into the image of God in you? If that is you, there's a prayer banner right there, and I've asked a few people to go over there and pray for you. It would be our honor to share with you the good news of Jesus and to welcome you into his kingdom, which is everlasting, and his, his uh, dominion, which is from generation to generation. Church, would you pray with me, and then we'll take communion individually. You can grab it and then take it back in your own seats over the next two songs. Lord Jesus, thank you for vague, confusing Old Testament books that, come to find out, are not actually that vague or confusing. They're very clear in giving us good news that you are in control and we are not. Lord, would you help those of us who have already submitted to you to see you as being above the terrifying influences and kingdoms of our world? Would you help us to trust that you are Lord, Lord of Lords, that you are in power and in control and we can live not as defeated minorities, but as brave, courageous missionaries in a world of darkness, that we are carrying your message of reconciliation and good news. Lord, would you make all of this more real for us and invite those of us that don't yet see you as king, just invite us through your love and your gentleness and grace to begin the process of trusting you and having our lives transformed. Amen.